This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Open Mind Self-Care Sessions with me, Frankie Bridge. Today's episode is focused specifically on parenting and child mental health. I'm joined by psychotherapist and author Philippa Perry. Thank you so much for coming on. I feel like this is always an important subject obviously but currently at the minute with everything that's been going on with covid i mean i have a son that i'm waiting to get to see a therapist and it's like everybody is just full to the brim can't get him in anywhere why do you think that children are needing more help than ever at the moment well it's not good for children to be isolated from other children Mm -hmm. it doesn't do them any good Their job, once they are bonded with their parents, is to form other bonds and find new tribes. I mean, especially as they become adolescent, their job, if you like, they're they're biologically programmed, you know, to form a new identity away from their family, to find their tribe. Because you can't just stick with your family tribe because your parents are going to die. Oh, you're biologically programmed <laughs> to know this. Yeah. And so you are searching for a new tribe to bond with. Once you've become secure in your new identity, your new tribe, you know where you belong, you can be nice to your parents again. <laughs> but at the moment, all you've got is your parents. So you'll have all these hormones sort of going separate, reform, have sex, and you're stuck at home. It's ridiculous. It's not good for your body. Mm. So you think the kind of teenagers will be suffering more than the younger children then? I think everybody will be suffering to some extent, except for the lucky autistic children who find other people too much anyway, and they're having a lovely time. (laughs) I've got a friend who's got an autistic son, and he says, Mum, this is perfect. We meet people on a walk. We can't get too close to them. Nobody kisses me. I hope it can go on forever. But we're not all like my friend's son. No, no. Although I say, I feel, I do feel like, you know, the kids have gone back to school today and I'm so pleased for my kids to send them back. I know that it's the best thing for them and they will become like their old selves again. But there is also that part where you're like, oh, I kind of, I'm going to miss the extra little conversations I had at home. And I don't know, there's that fear of everything going back to normal as well, I think, for a lot of people. It's so interesting, lockdown, because it's made us all stop. It's a bit like when you reboot your computer, isn't it? How is it going to restart? How are we going to be, are we going to be better with this reboot? I think a lot of people have had time to think about in social situations, what works for them and what doesn't work for them, what they miss and what they don't miss, what they're going to go back to and what they'll never go back to. And I think that's been quite good because people have had to to think what works for them and what doesn't. It's good. Mm. And how would you say then, because a lot of people who have been sent in a lot of questions to ask you, and someone said, what techniques do you recommend for helping children to deal with their anxiety 
Yeah, how do you help children to deal with anxiety? Right. I'm going to have a little issue with the word technique. Okay. Children are not recipes for cake, okay? (laughs) You don't add more of this and take less of that and put it more in the oven for longer and see how it rises. Stop it with the techniques. How do you want to be techniqued? Nobody wants to be techniqued. Nobody wants to be fixed, okay? The best thing we can do... And the best thing that can happen to us as well, because children are people too, is to be accepted exactly where we are, to be good enough where we are. And if where we are is being anxious the whole time, can we just accept that we're anxious the whole time? When we are accepted as good enough, exactly as we are, then and only then will we have the courage to explore experiment, Mm -hmm. do something new. So let's quit with the fix it. Stop fixing people and start accepting them. Feel with, don't deal with. Okay. It's really important because if someone tries to fix you, the message you get is I'm not good enough. And when you get the message, I'm not good enough, that's going to increase the anxiety and not, not make it go away. I mean, it's quite appropriate to be anxious a lot of the time. And we don't want to get to the stage when we're not only anxious, but we're anxious about being anxious. We don't want two things to cry about. So why can't we just accept people who are shy or anxious rather than having to fix them? Okay. And would you say then, because someone's asked how you build up a child's self-confidence, I would say that that's probably a big way of helping them with that. Accept them as they are is a big way of building confidence because if you feel good enough where you are, then you'll be chill, won't you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The other way of building a child's confidence is to be interested in them and not dismiss them. And be interested in what they show you. So if they show you, for instance, a picture, you don't go, oh, that's lovely, dear. Because <laughs> they can tell that that's just a sort of you trying to be good. So just look at the picture and say what you can see. You know, go, oh, wow, that sun's making me feel warm. I love the way the grass is growing. It reminds me of spring. And, oh, I wish I was outside playing at that house now. It looks such a nice place. Mm. Yeah, enter into their world. Imagine what it's like. You're not following a recipe. It's not about putting two ounces of this in it to make a perfect child. Your child's fine as they are. Yeah, I know. I've so done that. So, oh, that's lovely. Or when you don't know what the picture is, that's really good. What is it? (laughs) I mean, you know, tell me about how you made the picture. What were you thinking of? What were you feeling? Yeah. And how about then with emotional outbursts there's quite a few people talking about toddlers here asking about how do you make you know how do you help them with their emotions and things like that is that I'm I'm guessing you're going to say it's not something to be controlled I suppose it's well actually what we want to aspire to is finding appropriate ways to express all emotions Mm. but what we tend to do is say shush or stop throwing things about 
So people get the message that they're not acceptable when they're sad and they're not acceptable when they're angry. So they do learn to repress these parts of themselves. But when you repress something or depress a feeling right down, you still hold it within yourself and you think a part of yourself is bad. So what we need to do is find appropriate ways of expressing inconvenient feelings. And so, you know, if a kid is absolutely furious and has just smashed something or kicked off big time, what we do is we put the feeling into words for them rather than tell them off for having the feeling. And, you know, we can learn to know what their triggers are. And if we can see that, you know, a kid is seething, rather than say, don't be angry, you know, give them some crayons and say, draw your anger, show me what it feels like right now. We can find ways of letting them express themselves when they don't break anything. That is the idea. Right. And it'll take, it'll take a long time. And I thought, you know, with my toddler that, oh, God, when are we going to get there? But when she was as young as four, I can remember her saying, oh, I'm going to get so angry in a minute. And I was so pleased (laughs) because she was able to say what she was feeling rather than kick off. And then I could go, yes, it's really annoying, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So I could agree with her that she was angry, agree that she had cause to be angry. And then that takes the fire out of the situation. You know how when you get in from work and you go, oh, God, I had such a bad day. And your partner will go, oh, no, what happened? And you say, oh, my boss made me do everything twice and it's totally unnecessary or something. And they go, oh, no, you feel better. Mm. Imagine if you came in from work and you said, oh, I had a bad day. And they, no, you didn't. You've got all your friends to play with. You're so happy. <laughs> yeah. Or you come in, you've got a bad day and you, and you go, why? And you go, because my boss made me do everything twice. Well, you probably didn't do it right the first time, did you? <laughs> You're not going to confide in that person again. No, no. I mean, you probably give her many more chances, but in the end, you'll give up. And then people come to me and go, how can I get my 10-year-old to open up? Oh, how did you close him down mm. by telling him he was stupid or silly? I mean, things like, even things like when we think we know better, when they tell us there's monsters under the bed, okay, and we are so quick to say, look, no monsters under the bed, ho, 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 like we know better. But maybe monsters under the bed are the only way they have of expressing how they're feeling. Mm. And so what we have to do is go, tell me more about the monsters. What are their names? What do they get up to? I mean, the monster under the bed might be you in a hurry to put them to bed. They love you, so they can't possibly think you're bad and want to get rid of them. And so... They split off that bad part of you and make it into a monster under the bed. Or it might, the monster under the bed might not be that. It might be anything. But until you find out what their names are and what they've been up to today, Mm. you're not going to find out what's going on. So if you say, don't be stupid, there's no monsters under the bed. When you really want to hear how your kid's doing, you're not going to have a dialogue or a language between you that's going to make that any easier. Yeah. 
it's good to stop with the don't be sillies now, because what's silly to us is not silly to them. So almost kind of reacting to their feelings, how you would with an adult, really, Uh, you know. You know what? There's no such things as children. There's no such thing as adults. There's just people. Mm. And we all need to be treated with the same respect. I mean, we can sort of understand if, you know, our friend's friend winds her up but doesn't wind you up. You can you can understand that you can both have two different experiences of the same friend. But somehow we don't extend that respect to our kids. Yeah. It's sort of like, just because you like granny's sausages, you just think, <laughs> oh, eat them up or don't make a fuss. You know, the kid might not like them. Yeah. And would you say then, then that's exactly the same with teenagers? Because I think a lot of people have written in about teenagers, how to get their teenager to open up and talk to them. I feel like often teenagers, people feel like they're even more closed off. Is that because of what we did with them when they were toddlers or is, it, or is that a teenage thing? <laughs> well, the other thing about teenagers is they do require their privacy and we need to respect that. And we can repair any ruptures we might have caused in the past by saying, don't be silly. Mm. We can remember when we said, don't be silly. You said, you know, I said, don't be silly when you said you were scared of cows or something. You can say, I was wrong to do that. And I want you to tell me absolutely anything that's troubling you or you're worried about. And I'm not going to dismiss it now. I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to say, don't be silly. I know you experience things differently to I do, and I'm going to respect that. But don't pursue, don't dig. Mm. Respect privacy, but be available to listen to what's going on. And when you are given something, whether it's something like, I don't like Marmite anymore, or I'm vegetarian or whatever it is, welcome Mm. the information. A good little phrase to help you with this is rather than correct your teenager, try to connect with them. So when they come in and they dump their bag in the hall and they go to the fridge before they say hello to you, you can say, oh, you seem tired and exhausted rather than, will you pick up your bag and say hello before you open the fridge? I mean, that's what you'd be feeling. Mm. It must be so hard to stick to that. Sometimes. Well, actually, you're also feeling, oh, babes, what's wrong? You're feeling the two things simultaneously. You can just push back that habit of correcting which probably came from your own parents. It was probably how you were treated. And a a way of helping you push back that that urge to correct is remembering how you felt when you were continually corrected. Hmm. So connect, don't correct. And the interesting thing is that when we connect rather than correcting, the thing that was annoying us is probably going to fade away anyway. You know, if they feel connected with, there's less likelihood they need to shove the bag in the middle of the hall where you're going to trip up over it. Must just be a calmer environment. 
it's a much calmer environment if we remember to connect, don't correct. And sometimes we just can't bear the idea of our children being unhappy and we try to argue with them about it. And it's so much better if you just go along with the feeling rather than argue with them with what they're feeling. Mm. I mean, an example I use in my book, the book you wish your parents had read, is that suppose you took your, in the days before we had lockdown, suppose you took your kids to Disneyland or Legoland or something the day before and the day after you're catching up on work and then your kid comes into your office and goes, I'm so bored, we never go out. (laughs) It's so tempting to go, we went out yesterday, how dare you? I did all that and now I'm struggling to catch up and that's the gratitude I get. Okay, so instead you say, you sound bored and fed up, what would you like? And they'll say something like, I want to go back to Legoland again. And you'll go, yeah, that was fun, wasn't it? And then you've got that connection. You're both on the same page. And the kid feels heard and doesn't have to argue. If a kid doesn't feel understood, they will argue. And you're lucky if they're still arguing with you about it because they're still talking to you. Mm. So you've got time to make that connection. You said earlier about how kids need to make friends because they know they're going to lose their parents at some point. And like, well, they don't actually consciously know that. It's sort of, I mean, they don't think about death (laughs) full time, but it's an unconscious knowing. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people have said, you know, how do you help children deal with loss? Like, I know my son, his new thing every night is to cry and say, oh, I'm worried about mummy and daddy dying and me dying and Mm. and that's I find that a really hard conversation to have because I'm aware you want to tell the truth but then it doesn't ever seem to you you have to tell the truth Mm. you have to tell the truth I mean how old is your son seven oh I mean everyone's been talking about dying for a year yeah and that's a whole seventh of his life (laughs) it's not just like a 30th of it might, oh, you look about 30, a 30th <laughs> of it is of yours or a 63rd of it is of mine. I mean, a seventh of my life would be about nine years. And if it's something been going on and on and on and on for nine years, boy, would I be feeling it. Yeah. Everybody talking about the danger of breathing any, anywhere near someone, otherwise you die and anyone could die of this thing. Totally understandable why your son's like that. What would you like, Frankie? Imagine it. For for nine years, everyone around you's been frightened of a disease and you're scared of losing the people you love. What would you like those people that you love to do for you? Don't. uh, This is why I find it so hard. I don't know. I suppose I don't have the. I feel like I have to fix it, and I know it's something I can't fix. Exactly what you were saying. Good. Well done. You can't fix it because this is in part a truth. Mm. I mean, he's seven, and he's sort of learnt the lesson of immortality. Maybe a bit earlier than he can handle it. Mm. So. What I would like if I was a seven-year-old and brooding on my own mortality and my parents' mortality is 
I'd like someone to sit with me while I whimpered and stroked my head and go, yeah. But one thing is that when eventually I do die, aged 102, (laughs) you will be 83. And I know it seems unbelievable that you could do without me. But you'd be so good at everything by then. You'll have so many other friends. You will be sad when I go. But you'll be able to cope with everything and you'll be fine. And in the meantime, when you do need me, here I am. And I'm going to stay with you until you're asleep because I can see you're very scared right now. And I don't want you to feel scared. So it's okay to be scared, but I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, I did. I I have kind of said around that. I did then get myself into a hole of, I said, you know, you'll be a lot older. Mummy will probably be a hundred and something. And I said, you know, you'll have loads of friends. And I said, you might even have a family then as well. You know, you might have a husband or wife and you might have kids. What if I don't find a wife or a husband? And I was like, oh, let myself. So I don't bring that one up anymore. What I I do... (laughs) When anyone, child or adult, is going down the what if route, is I say, okay, we're going to change what if to so what. Okay. So what if I don't find a husband? So what if I lose my mum? And there's, then there's the, then they come up with their own solutions. Okay, I'll try that one. And if you've got a a kid that's worried about mortality, age seven, what you have got is a super sensitive kid. Okay, and if a super sensitive kid has the right environment, they grow up to be super sensitive geniuses because we need super sensitive people. We need them. We need them to see and spot and feel the things that we haven't noticed. There's a book by uh, Dr. Tom Boyce called The Orchid and the Dandelion. And he describes some of us as orchids. We need special soil fertilizer. We need a certain amount of sunlight. We need exactly the right temperature. We need the right environment. And when we've got that, we blossom to become the most beautiful flower. And when we haven't got that, we wither and die. And the other ones of us are dandelions. They can grow up anywhere between a crack in the paving stones. They don't really need fertilizer. <laughs> they can have little light or a lot light. They're going to survive. I mean, you can still go over them with a the, with steamroller. They're not infallible, but, you know, they're a lot tougher. And they can grow up to be fantastic contributors to society, but they're never going to be the geniuses. They're never going to be the inventors, the super scientists, the poet the artist we need the mix we need everyone and if you've got a super sensitive child an orchid I mean you might have two kids one of them they're fine whatever situation you put them in hello I'm just going to dump you with strangers all afternoon you'll be fine yes I will bye see you later you know one of them's like this and the other one's like no way will I exist oh I've got both yeah I've got both yeah okay no way will I exist in the (laughs) company of strangers I'm coming with you to your doctor's appointment. You just have to go, yeah, okay. Yeah. Or whatever it is. Because you just have to respect their differences and how they are. You cannot scold a child out of being sensitive. 
it will not help. Mm. I think we do in as a society, we feel like we have to make everyone everyone almost the same like it's you you fear if they're if they are a sensitive child if they're a child that worries that worries us so we try to fix it and yeah the fixing the fixing it's so I learned this as a psychotherapist do not fix your client don't fix them and it's the biggest gift I can give to someone when they go I'm not good enough and I get them to experience themselves as being good enough mm. rather than fixing them. And then they go, you know what? I did redo my CV. I did go for that job. You know, then they paradoxically feel like they can develop. Mm. And someone said here, my child won't sleep on their own. How can I fix that? I suppose is the thing. Is that a similar thing? You know, how do you know when how, to push? How old is the- they haven't. How old is they the child? Said. 35, 36? <laughs> they no. haven't said. Tell you what, by the time they want to bring a sexual partner home, boy, do they don't <laughs> want you in the bed then. That's so true. I think we need to go with what works for now. And there's a lot of insecurity around at the moment. We don't know when we're going to get back to so-called normal. We don't know if normal's ever going to be the same again. And the children are sensing it and they want you close Mm. because that makes them feel better. Buy a bigger bed (laughs) so more people can sleep in it. Yeah. I mean, I I let my kids sleep in my bed all all the time because I said the same. I said, when they're older, they're not going to want to sleep in here. No, I've never known my daughter ever, ever, you know, bring a sexual partner home (laughs) and want me... On the same floor, even. (laughs) Amazingly. Incredible, isn't it? How they grow up so quick. But, okay, serious now. Don't worry about sleeping with your kid. It's fine. I don't care how old they are. I mean, in in some societies, they sleep in the bed until they leave to get married. (laughs) I mean, you know. So don't worry about that. Unless you hate sleeping with another person. You know, some of us have been trained to sleep alone so much that we can't sleep with other people. Um, I can sleep with children, but not adults. Strange that. (laughs) Anyway, um, in my book, I talk about a method that isn't sleep training. It's sleep nudging. And it's slowly, slowly, slowly. So you break down the separation into tiny, tiny steps. And the step that they're comfortable with at the moment, maybe it's sleeping on top of mummy in the bed at the moment, okay? So sleeping on top of mummy is the baseline. The next step is sleeping by the side of mummy to become until that becomes the baseline. Then the next step might be sleeping by the side of daddy or auntie. And the next step might be sleeping in the same room as... And then the next step might be sleeping in the same room as my sibling. And gradually, gradually, if we traumatize a child by making them separate too quickly, we will be making more work for ourselves later on. So there's no quick way, no parenting hack that saves time. 
Because if you try and hack something to save time, you'll be paying for it later on. Because if you try and manipulate your children into being or doing something, you will be teaching them how to manipulate. It's not really something you want coming back at you, is it? No. And what about then with things like if they've got quite big phobias or fears of things? How do you deal with ah, how do you deal with you. that? Well, a phobia, say you're scared of buttons or something like that, is a misplaced fear. Okay. Okay. So there is a fear of something. I was seeing a mum who lived on the 16th floor in a tower block and her little boy. And he developed a phobia of the lift. Now, you can imagine how inconvenient that was if you had a pushchair and some shopping and that sort of thing. Mm. But he was about three or four years old and, uh, oh boy, he would not go in the lift. So she actually did do the emergency stairs for a bit. She told herself, I'll keep me fit, won't I? Mm. But it was just getting worse rather than better. And we sat down and I, I got him to draw things and he kept drawing cars all smashed up. So she was separated from the kid's father. And I said, tell me about these cars all smashed up. And she and her ex didn't talk very much. I mean, they were quite amicable, but they didn't really share what was going on in each other's lives. And they, you know, drop each other off for, you know, access and that sort of thing. But she found out through her little boy that grandfather had had a very bad car crash and had been trapped in a car. You know, he'd heard the grown-ups talk about this and she didn't know any of this. She didn't know it had gone on. She wasn't, he hadn't told her, the little boy hadn't told her, the dad hadn't told her. And so we said, oh, you're scared of getting in that lift in case it's like a car. No, I'm not. <laughs> okay, you're not. Mm. Sorry, my bad. But, you know, she just carried on talking to her like, it must have been really scary when you heard you nearly lost grandpa in a car crash and talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. And then he just, he lost the phobia about the lift. Sometimes you won't be able to find out what the phobia is about. Mm. It might be some dream metaphor or something. And I've got a friend who's had a phobia since childhood that she's still got which is she won't drink a liquid out of an opaque cup. So she won't drink tea or coffee in a mug or anything. Okay. And she'll only drink out of a glass. She's just got this thing. She's uh, 43 now. You know what? Doesn't interfere with her life too much. We can just go along with these things. I never make my friend drink out of a mug. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Why would I do that? So some. It makes her uncomfortable. Because people often think you've got to expose them to the fear so you'd say that that's not necessarily correct well yeah you can do that general exposure if you're if you're scared of going on the underground you can go as far as the steps and then you take one step down one day and one to another so you can do gradual exposure but then what tends to happen is the original fear will find some other phobia to express itself with so I like getting to the core root myself mm-hmm whatever that is. Yeah. I mean, I dare say my friend once tasted something nasty in a cup. That she hadn't seen, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So. so would you say the same but, thing? Because someone said, how do you deal with a child that has a phobia of blood and vomit? 
you don't make them take a career as a paramedic. <laughs> no. <laughs> obviously, try and treat blood and vomit away from them. I think they pick up these fears when we have shown disgust at such things and they, and, and they get it from us. Mm. And it's a difficult thing to undo. Maybe we can't. Let's not go after that perfect child that we're happy with the child we've got. Who is scared of vomit? My child's scared of spiders. There you go. Mm. And, you know, I accept that. So I always ask everyone what their top three tips are, and I feel like you've kind of covered that, but if you wouldn't mind. (laughs) Top three tips. Connect, don't correct. Nobody's perfect. We can repair when we've got wrong. We can say sorry and feel with, don't deal with. And if they want to find out any more information or find any help, where can they go? What can you suggest? I recommend my book where I've written all this down in expedient ways possible. The book you wish your parents had read and your children will be glad that you did. It's available on Audible and in paperback. Well, thank you so much. I'm definitely going to buy your book, so you've definitely sold one to me. Oh, good. Because everything you said just made perfect sense to me. And you do, as a parent, you do want to fix. And as someone who suffers from depression and anxiety, my biggest thing is I'm always saying to people, I don't want you to fix me. I just want you to listen. I just want you to be here for me. And yet with my kids, I just have this instinct of, okay, I need to make this okay. I need to fix this. And it's so well, silly. Well, it was what was done to you. We do what was done to us. Yep. And it wasn't our parents' fault, just like it's not your fault. We all do our best the whole time. But I just thought I'd give a little bit of psychotherapy wisdom in simple ways to make parenting easier, mm-hmm. which is what I've done in my book, well, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Open Mind Self-Care Sessions. I hope this has been really helpful for you. It definitely has for me. If you've been affected by this episode or would like to find out any more information regarding mental health, then please head over to mind.org.uk. And if you have any questions which you'd like to get answered, then please follow me on Instagram and look out for my stories where I collect all of your fantastic thoughts for each episode. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.